Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. How many times have you had questions after the homily? How often have you wished that Father had spoken on this topic or that topic or thought, wouldn't it be great if I could just sit down with him and talk about all the stuff that didn't quite make it into the homily? Well, this podcast is for you. We'll talk about topics ranging from literature to politics, from church teaching to church architecture. If it's relevant to Catholics, to their daily lives, to their journey to heaven, it's on our agenda. Whether you're in every Sunday in the pew or a Christmas and Easter, or maybe you can't even remember the last time you went to Mass, we're here for you. Father Daniel Scheitz, the pastor, among other things, in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, at St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back, Father Dan, to After the Homily. Great to be here, Chris. Well, we're sitting here in your office on Friday of Catholic Schools Week, so it seems only fitting that we should talk about, you know, Catholic schools and Catholic education. And I could be wrong. I think I'm right. I believe you yourself are a product of a Catholic education. Yes. And of course, the first Catholic school is the Catholic home, the domestic church. And from my home... In terms of formal education at Catholic schools, I think I have spent 18 years <laughs> of my life. So grade school, high school, and then all the rest would be postgraduate education at various Catholic institutions. So was there, as you recall, was there ever a question in your family if you and your siblings would attend Catholic grade school? My parents decided early on that Catholic education was going to be the route for our family. My father grew up Catholic and was educated in Catholic schools. My mom grew up in evangelical Lutheran and she became Catholic when my dad and she married. And she too decided that it, it was worth the sacrifice. And it was a sacrifice. I remember there were years where my parents didn't buy any new clothes for themselves. Wow. Everything got, got spent on the kids. So it had to be, they had to be very intentional about sending their kids to Catholic school. Yes. It was a great act of faith on their part. It's interesting. You know, um, I think all parents who are sending their kids to Catholic school, especially when they start to reach those pesky middle school years, sometimes the kids don't want to go. They'd rather go where their secular friends are going. And it can, it can make for a tough, a tough conversation. Do you ever remember a, a rebellious time where you wanted to go to the public school? In my case, no. And I, I have to say, I remember when I was in my first day of kindergarten, walking into a public school for the first time. And I remember as a kindergartner feeling the absence of God and <laughs> nobody had told me anything about this. Uh, that was my intuition. And I should say uh, from the get-go, just to be absolutely clear, I really believe that parents are the primary educators of their children. And I, I actually believe that the good of each particular child is its own discernment. And in terms of public education, there are plenty of great public schools and some kids actually benefit from what I would call a more missionary environment. In other words, mm. where they have to be the tip of the spear where the church meets the world 
in that setting. I can also say that certain schools that are Catholic in name only, so nominally Catholic schools, can actually cause more damage than if the child had gone to a, a, a public a government-run school. I should also mention that I have great respect for families who homeschool their children. Mm. And that too is its own discernment for the family and it's a discernment for what's good for each child. So there really is, at least as far as I can see, no one size fits all, but some of the principles are constants. So the home is the first learning environment. The parents are the first teachers. And so whatever responsibility is delegated to other people in however partial a way, it's actually not a substitute for parents forming their children to be lifelong learners uh, from the heart of the church. That that's the the key for for everyone. In other words, we're not outsourcing the raising of our kids, whether to government schools or private schools. No, and see that can actually create a really unhelpful feedback loop. So you have parents who can believe that the Catholic school will be the substitute for what's lacking in the home, or the school will provide a a Christian veneer (laughs) to the, the moral life of the kids without any active practice of the faith on the part of the family. And that type of spiritual schizophrenia is deeply damaging and and actually needs to be avoided. Now, because I know you're a lover of history, a little bit about sort of the history of Catholic education in America. Where did all of this begin? Well, we could go really far back. <laughs> so I'll speak here in generalities, but I believe these generalities are grounded in history. So the very idea that each child should receive an education in a formal setting, I, I would argue, is a, a Catholic gift to the world. So Catholic schools developed from the belief that, that each child created in the divine image was, was capable of learning about the whole. So instead of just being a, a family-based trade-style education, the schooling that grew up around, for example, monasteries uh, and in in the smaller towns uh, led by by the the clergy, that that's a real gift. Now, that education got differentiated. it It advanced when various religious orders had as their charism the the education of of the young, of the founding of universities, the Middle Ages, especially uh, staffed by Franciscans, Dominicans. And then in our own country in the 19th century, pioneers of education like St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, Bishop Neumann, establishing a parochial system to provide really a Catholic alternative to an anti-Catholic environment. Yeah, I was going to say, to what degree did it, was it born out of anti-Catholic sentiment in early America? Certainly in the United States in the 19th century, these, these waves of, of Catholic 
immigrants were faced with government-run schools that, that were actively hostile to the faith. And there was a certain type of Protestantism practiced at that time that, that saw the, the Catholic Church as a, a threat to the, the democratic order. And, and so this, the Catholic schools were a way of forming the next generation in, in the church's beliefs and, and almost to be a kind of self-sufficient entity unto itself. And finally, of course, with the assimilation of Catholics into the, the mainstream of the country, for better or for worse, the, the felt need for that has diminished. You know, growing up as a non-Catholic, often in rural Southern states, um, there was often a Catholic school where I lived and I can remember thinking there are non-Catholics that go there and they're always the really smart kids. <laughs> but there was this feeling that, well, whether you're Catholic or not, if you go to a Catholic school, you're going to get a top tier education. Do you think that that feeling, that sentiment exists still today? In many parts of the world, I, I think it's a cultural commonplace. So, for example, throughout Africa, uh, into Asia, uh, South America, in those countries, the, the Catholic Church is providing the education for the future professionals and leaders of the culture. And, and even non-Catholics uh, send their, their children there with those hopes. Again, that's a, that's a two-edged sword. So the, the gospel penetrates the next generation, but at the same time, the cultural expectations of, of, a, of an education divorced from an actively Catholic home life, it, it winds up having the negative effect over time of watering down the distinctively Catholic quality of education and, and actually diminishing the church's evangelical influence. Well, with your many years experience in Catholic schools of all varieties, if you had to look back to, you know, that grade school experience of yours and compare it to today, a few decades later, what are the similarities and differences between Catholic education then and today? I think when I was in grade school, so this would have been the 1970s, there was still the presence of uh, religious orders, oh. for example, in my case, the Sisters of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration. And that was a, a forming ethos for the school. So that has obviously diminished uh, these days. Looking back on my grade school education, I remember in my class, I think a total of two of my classmates came from a family that had suffered divorce. So things were still relatively intact in terms of family life. By comparison with now, the Catholic resources available in the year of our Lord, 2023, so far outstrip what was available to me in the 1970s that it, it leaves me in awe. So a young person's ability to get we'll just call it a great Catholic education, 
today, I, I think is, is greater than, than ever before. In the past, and this would be before my time, there was certainly more structure. There was certainly more uniformity in the sense of common standards. So you'd have the Baltimore Catechism, for example, shaping the passing on of, of the basics of the faith. But, but in terms of the, the richness and the depth of, of content, for example, in the study of sacred scripture, I, I just think we've made a, a quantum leap in, in a, the better direction today. So it, it, it's, it's always going to be a, a, mixed, a mixed bag depending on the cultural moment. There are always going to be strengths and weaknesses. But I find that there's a greater openness today than there might have been even 15 years ago to the riches of the tradition. So ironically, uh, at this point in the, the church's modern history, there might be a greater appreciation for the, the riches of old than there would have been, say, when I was in high school in the 1980s. Maybe enough time has gone by to give a, an adequate look back through time. Yes, and I also think that the teaching papacies of John Paul II sure. and Pope Benedict have been decisive in this area. The fact that those two popes, in a sense, spoke over the middle management of the church bureaucracy, including a lot of worldliness that had gotten into Catholic schools and just spoke directly to the faithful. Mm. I think it's inspired generations of people to make the Catholic faith their own and then share those resources. So it's not just a question of using the, the teaching papacies of John Paul and Benedict uh, as simply, you know, direct reference points. It's, they had a leavening influence on, for example, all sorts of Protestant ministers being received into the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. And so you have people like uh, Scott Hahn, John Bergsma, and the catechetical resources that they've produced have, have just generated all sorts of, of good fruit. And the Catholic institutions at which they teach have also generated a lot of, of really rich Catholic intellectual life. So you could take schools like Franciscan University of, of Steubenville, a, a Catholic school that had, had grown moribund, mm. was ready to close, then Father Michael Scanlon turns around. You have other startups like Thomas Aquinas College in California, Christendom College out east, Ave Maria in mm. Florida. And so, you know, from the ground up, they're Catholic. At a school like Notre Dame, which we could do several podcasts <laughs> on that. I'm a Notre Dame alum, class of 91. <laughs> I really think one of the greatest strengths of that university is actually the, the smaller schools and institutes within it, whether it's the, the architecture school or the Institute for Church Life. Now the theology department has grown much, much stronger within some of the historically Catholic universities that in other respects have really abandoned the Catholic character, still they're able to draw pockets of, of faculty and 
networked professors who are are still able to to prepare Catholics uh, for the highest levels of of public witness mm-hmm. in the country. So I think of somebody like Amy Coney Barrett and you know professor Notre Dame Law School. She sent her children in South Bend to a, a classical school founded by many Catholics, uh, Trinity School at Greenlawn. And it, it's that kind of out-of-the-box scrappiness that in mysterious ways winds up being elevated to great cultural influence. Yeah, hearing you talk about Father Scanlon and others that have started now what most people would call great Catholic universities, it would be interesting to trace the timeline as to where they were in their formation when St. John Paul was really radically changing the world. Yes. I, and here, again, I'm speaking in generalities, but, but my suspicion is that that generation of founders had a very deep sense of the riches of the church's tradition that were threatened with being forgotten or marginalized and almost like the, the body's immune system rising to the occasion, they, they provided a kind of immune response in Catholic education not to go the way of the world, actually to go in the direction of, of more radically intentional Catholicism. And it, it wound up not only producing good fruit, but, but the schools that didn't go that route, that just went the route of cultural accommodation, uh, the vast majority of them uh, are closed. Well, yeah, I think I remember seeing something recently that, you know, during the pandemic years when enrollments have been going down, that the only schools where enrollment has been going up uh, are some of the more, for lack of a better term, traditional Catholic small liberal arts schools, and their numbers are rising rapidly. Right. You know, the larger the the school or the school system in this day and age, the more beholden it becomes to the, the government. And where there's government money, there's government regulation. And where <laughs> there's government regulation, there's always the threat of the evacuation of mission. But in general, by comparison with, with the public schools, Catholic schools were able to be a little bit more nimble in the recent time and were able to weather the storm with less drama than, than some of the secular counterparts. A few years ago, I had a chance to spend some time with an indirect friend of the family who was a retired judge and a Catholic. He went to Loyola. But he was pointing out, you know, if you were anywhere, especially east of the Mississippi, and you were a Catholic, you either went to Notre Dame or you went to Loyola. There was such a cultural push that said, if you have a brain and you're a Catholic— this is what you have to do. We probably, it's fair to say, don't have that cultural push now, but yet you could argue maybe that's okay. Maybe it's better, to your earlier point, uh, because of some of these great institutions that are rising up. Yes, and I would also add that the Catholic presence at public universities, for example, Purdue University or the University of Illinois, the Champaign-Urbana campus, the Newman Center there, the the possibility of getting a really good Catholic formation, both in the classroom and outside the classroom, 
is arguably greater than one could get at a at a nominally Catholic school where the external trappings are are carted out now and again for the alumni, but but everybody knows it's it's no secret that the heart and and really the mind of the school uh, has has abandoned thinking from the the heart of the church. And, and I guess I don't know the the complete history, but if we look at some really powerful organizations like Focus, Artotus to us, or some of the others, I don't believe they existed uh, re- really post. Pre-Vatican II, certainly. Yes. I think we're in the age of uh, evangelical scrappiness. That <laughs> that book by Monsignor James Shea that I've promoted at the parish and will continue to promote from Christendom to Apostolic mm. Mission, uh, Pastoral Strategies for an Apostolic Age, I really think lays out the charter of what it is to be a lifelong learner in the faith. And for me, that is the goal of education to form one in being a lifelong learner. So if we, maybe if we just focused on grade school and high school, Catholic education, if there was a universally agreed to phenomenal example, and we were to go and look at the school, what is it that would make it phenomenal? What makes a great Catholic school? I really think the first layer of it is the network of families who are living an intentionally Catholic life in their home and are supporting one another in the living of that life. So not the little house on the prairie, individual Catholics hunkered down, you know, trying to be an island of sanity against the world, but, but actually networks of Catholics living in the world and the families forming deep intentional friendships to to give their children more and other than what the world is giving them. Secondly, Catholic educators. So teachers who and administrators who are not simply Catholic by cultural background, but actually themselves are lifelong learners in being formed in in the Catholic intellectual tradition, for example. I also think uh, pastor leadership is is essential where the whole ecosystem of the parish is geared not for the um, the distribution of suburban spiritual consumer goods, but rather networking, these families and and also allowing and fostering lay initiatives so that adults can appropriate the faith for themselves and then pass it on to the next generation. I'll, I'll just give a, a simple example that came to me this week. So during the pandemic, there was a guy in our parish sends one of his daughters to public high school all sorts of craziness during the, the pandemic. And he realized I have to be more intentional about how I'm forming my family. So he gets together with other like-minded families and they do it. Well, his daughter who goes to a public school uh, in her, her television workshop class uh, produced this amazing uh, multi-minute video where she's 
testifying to the, the central importance of the Catholic faith in her life. And she's attracting students at this public school because she knows what she believes. And I, you know, I, I wrote this father and I said, you're raising a daughter who knows that she's a daughter of the king, the king meaning Christ. And that's, that's what we have to be, to be aiming for. Now, you also spent many years teaching in a Catholic high school. <clears throat> you know, when we talk about the families and the strength of the families, at least in our community, parish schools tend to be, you know, K through eight. That's not true necessarily in every community, but in our community, you know, there are all of these parish lower level schools, and then they, you know, send their students on to common shared, you might say, high schools. Is there a difference in what makes a Catholic high school great compared to maybe a parish-based lower level school? In general, I think Catholic education in terms of parish-based schools or diocesan-run high schools, for example, still has a tremendous freedom in relation to the various public currents of the age. So I know the, you know, the gender ideology, the critical race theory, things that are, are just going through schools like a, like a virus. Again, depending on the, the part of the country, depending on all sorts of, you know, commitments by the pastoral leadership, the, the schools run by the church still have more freedom to be integrally themselves against those currents and to safeguard what, what those currents are aiming at, but without any of the pathological elements of that. But when it comes to a parochial grade school, I really think the formation of the children morally is especially important in second grade, the sacrament of reconciliation. Tomorrow we have first confessions uh, for the kids and I take that as one of the most serious responsibilities of my priesthood because right. we're laying the foundation for how this child is going to navigate the drama of sin and grace in his or her life. So, so the, the possibility of doing really good things at the parochial grade school level, wonderful. Catholic high schools, I actually think there is where the intellectual life needs to be taken more seriously at a deeper level. I, I taught high school level theology for a total of 12 years. I loved every minute of it. And at least at that time, I had the freedom to design my course curriculum so that it really had the, the riches of the Catholic intellectual tradition. Back in the day when religious orders staffed schools, including high schools, these religious orders would develop the whole curriculum. Like they would write the literature textbooks, the history textbooks. Those days are gone, but the ability to assemble a Catholic curriculum so that all of the, the subjects that have been shaped by the secular academy can be leavened by the Catholic intellectual tradition, that is incredibly exciting. And I, I count it one of the greatest joys of my priestly life to have prepared students to enter their professional lives as Catholics to the core of their 
profession. And yeah, that that just fills me with gratitude. There's a very sad statistic that post-confirmation in, in our diocese that's around eighth grade, the probability of students remaining Catholic is very low. And then I think that number gets even worse post-high school. Yes. What do you think happens or maybe doesn't happen in Catholic high schools that contribute to that loss of our youth? Sure. And I hear it's a multi-layered response, but um, in terms of just Catholic education of teachers and administrators, many of them are being educated in the secular model of of their subjects and even what it is to be a, a teacher the the textbooks that are being used aren't different than the the books that are used anywhere and so that actually has to change and it's only going to change from the the grassroots i will say that the primary challenge least as I can see it, it's not a kind of right versus left. It's not primarily a a political one, as deep and as important as those political differences are. And I do believe that the cultural left has embraced ideas about the human person that are just are just pathological. (laughs) The, The idea that engendered bodily relation is fundamentally something arbitrary governed by the emotions, that that's a dead end. But I I would say that the larger problem that all of us face is the technologization of human life down to the core. And that is something I I think we need to find common cause with a great variety of, of people. It's not a question of demonizing technology. You know, handwriting is a technology. The the book is a technology. Speech is a technology. So, but we have to learn something from the Amish here that every change that we introduce has the potential to change the whole ecosystem. And we've reached a point now with the digital revolution where the inventions that are supposed to serve us are actually enslaving us and turning us into zombies. So I, I see across the board the the primary challenge for the the decades ahead is how to recover and flourish in one's humanity in the midst of uh, and in spite of all of the gadgets. To to get to that last question you asked, so why after a period of formation yeah. uh, do kids who are confirmed leave? My, my short answer is that going into it, we're too formed by the, the culture and uh, coming out of it are just thoroughly drowned in the culture. Mm. I know that there's enough finger pointing to go around. So like, you know, oh, if parents did more, if uh, teachers <laughs> did more, if pastors did more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But rather than that kind of blame game, I, I actually think... We need to study more deeply what it is to be human and to allow kids to discover the richness of being human. So the statistics about whether one will practice the faith or not practice the faith, the research of late tends to indicate that 
By the age of 13, most kids have made a fundamental decision whether they're going to stake their life on uh, something other than what the world is offering uh, or not. And I think that period of early adolescence is exceedingly important. Mm. I think the, the windows of opportunity, the seeds of one's lifelong consecration are planted mm. there. I mean, it seems important to point out if non-Catholic listeners would think, why do you make, why do you repeatedly say remain Catholic? Because it's not like we're saying, you know, after high school, are you still a Colts fan? You know, we're, we're not saying, do you still wear the same jersey? Yeah, the understanding of the church is that uh, it's baptism that that makes us Catholic. So baptism into the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, like you are Catholic. And should you choose to leave, you don't cease to be Catholic. You're just a Catholic on the run. You're, you're going the route of the prodigal son, but to spend the rest of one's life fighting against one's identity that's an autoimmune disease. Mm. And it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that we live in an age where physiologically more and more people are coming down with autoimmune disorders. And in the, in the spiritual life, uh, a lot of what we see is the equivalent of, of an autoimmune mm. disorder. It's the, body, it's the body attacking itself. And the, the lack of a spiritually integrated life is something that, we, we actually need to study that as opposed to reduce it to conflicting ideologies. Yeah, I mean, it, to that point, it's not that after high school on a survey, one would check a Catholic on a box, but I think we're trying to say in a much deeper level, are you living the values that you were taught? Do, do you have this unquenchable thirst to grow in holiness and to get closer and closer to God? Yeah, and, and even the word value is is a subjective term. In other words, if my life fundamentally hinges on my subjective assessment of what is valuable, we've we've already lost the game. Um, principles are objective truths, and to the extent that I'm identifying those objective truths and allowing my subjectivity to be, to be trained, challenged, transformed, converted. It's there that, that the real adventure begins. So when St. Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, uh, be transformed in your thinking, that, that is the adventure of Catholic education. And whether it takes the form of St. Paul going to the Areopagus in Athens, the place of human reason, <laughs> and proposing the person of Christ and the mystery of the resurrection. At a, at a certain point, it does come down to that. We live in the world. Christ has made us missionary disciples. Uh, and he said, go, mm. baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lo, I'm with you always till the end of the world. So the, the divine teacher, Christ himself, is the one giving us the commission of of Catholic education. And so there the horizon isn't just personal need fulfillment or getting a nice career or a comfortable suburban life until I, I meet my happy painless end. 
it really is the adventure of of sainthood and and a communion of persons that that serves and thrives in the world redeemed. You know, what do you think of this idea that the greatest problems facing our world today would not be or could not be solved with greater technology? That, you know, the, the problem solvers of humanity's problems tomorrow will be great thinkers and great oh, leaders. Oh, it's so obvious. It's so obvious. Yeah, I, as a society, we put such an emphasis. I have a degree in biology, so I'm on the wrong side, but we put such an emphasis on technology, on engineering, on mathematics, right. the hard sciences. No, and if I could, you know, just the the date happens to be February 3rd, 2023. So there is a certain type of environmentalism that becomes a pseudo-religion. So if we if we were just to move away from gasoline-powered cars to the electric vehicles, then the, the planet would be able to to cool down, et cetera, et cetera. You know, meanwhile, Pope Francis is in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where cobalt for the electric batteries is harvested by people who are enslaved. And the Catholic Church is in Congo. And <laughs> the fact that Catholic schools in Congo are educating people out of slavery and teaching people that life is not a series of battles between competing warlords, still less a dog-eat-dog struggle for material resources, but, but that we have, we have a dignity and the common destiny in God, that is no small thing. And for all of the failures by people you know, in the church, especially when it comes to aping the world, worldliness, we, we have to acknowledge the miracle. If it weren't for the existence of the church, I, I really think the human race would have done itself in long ago. I really think the, the gospel is bearing fruit and, and the only hope for the world is is for the gospel to be spread to the next generation, to be appropriated more, more deeply. Well, it's hard to imagine a greater advertisement for Catholic education than just that. But, you know, if you were sitting here with parents that are contemplating sending their children to, to Catholic grade school, and maybe they, they can afford it or they believe they can, but they're just torn with, torn with the decision, how, how would you counsel them to discern the answer to that? Well, I would first have them talk to families who are intentionally living their Catholic faith and to do an examination of what they need in their own home for the, the Catholic education to take place. Then the second level of, of discernment is to see whether the Catholic school at, at a parish, for example, is a, a good fit for, for the child and to speak to the actual teachers, the actual administrators, the actual families who are part of that. If the family already has a connection to public education or, or needs that would be better served in a public setting, to develop plan, again, in the context of just the network families from the heart of parish life, for how that child is going to be formed to be a true 
missionary, true apostle. And if the discernment is is homeschooling, to get involved with that network and and to make sure that the the connection with parish life is is really intentionally fostered. I've I've known homeschooling settings that have been very rich and rewarding for kids and others that have been stifling. It's come down to the parents being so afraid of the culture that they wind up creating a setting of of just too much control and it it stunts the the growth of the particular child. And I've known families where in a single family um, at the same time, like, you know, one kid is in, enrolled in the you know, Catholic parish grade school, another one goes to public school, and another is homeschooled. And so it, the, the reason I'm, I'm mentioning these options isn't to be diplomatic. I suppose it's to be pastoral in the deepest sense because I'm, I'm the shepherd of, of the whole family of families. But I, I actually believe deep down that these different possibilities have to be discerned through. I think one of the, the greatest advantages of a parochial grade school is that there really is a, a critical mass of just really, really good Catholic families. And the possibility of, of forming good Catholic friendships is, is just, it's greater and in a certain sense easier than, for example, in a in a public setting. Well, it's been a great conversation. I think if I had to pick two takeaways from you today, it would be that nothing takes the place of a Catholic family in terms of education, no matter how you choose to educate your children. And secondly, this idea that Catholic light may be more harmful than than no no Catholic at all. Absolutely. (laughs) And if I could conclude with an apocryphal story that I always told at the beginning of my great Catholic thinkers course, and I've, I've shared it in the parish any number of times, but it, it's really guided my whole sense of, of Catholic education. And it's the story of uh, the fire of London, 1666. The city burns down and they're rebuilding the cathedral, St. Paul's Cathedral. The architect is Sir Christopher Wren. And as the story goes, he goes to the worksite in disguise and goes up to a workman and asks him, what are you doing? And the guy has a wheelbarrow, there are rocks in it. He gives this stranger an odd look, puts the wheelbarrow down and says, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm carting rocks from here to there. That's what I'm doing. Okay. So Sir Christopher Wren in disguise goes up to worker number two, doing the same thing, asks the same question. What are you doing? And this worker says, I'm just trying to make a living just trying to support my family. Okay. He goes to a third worker doing the same task, asks the same question, what are you doing? This worker puts on the wheelbarrow, looks off in the distance and says, I'm building a great cathedral for Sir Christopher Wren and the greater glory of God. So Chris, all three of those responses are correct. Like, what are we doing in Catholic education? Well, at the most basic level, we're teaching the basics of human knowledge, what we need to survive. 
what are we doing in Catholic education? Well, we're preparing the next generation for a livelihood so that they can have a family life. But most deeply, what are we doing? We're building a great cathedral. That is to say, a communion of persons who are seeking God and in that process, taking the best of of what human reason has produced and the great gift of faith and intentionally ordering everything for the greater glory of God, which happens to produce human flourishing and the recognition of the stranger as our friend. So those three dimensions are always going to be there and the answer that we give to what is Catholic education, all three of those answers are correct, but only the final answer, building the great cathedral, is comprehensive enough to include the others and transcendent so that we're not simply wage slaves or dung beetles dying on the hill when our, our, our days of consumption have ended. We're, we're meant for, for the, the greater glory of God and the, the flourishing of, of human beings fully alive in Christ. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you, Father Dan. Thank you, Chris. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation of After the Homily as much as I have. Uh, I hope you'll plan to join us regularly, and I hope you'll tell all your friends to join us as well. Are there topics you'd like to hear from Father Dan about? Do you have a question that you'd like answered? If so, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at church at saintv.org. That's S-A-I-N-T-V dot O-R-G. And type after the homily in the subject, or you can text me directly at 260-450-8878. And please start the message with After the Homily. Thanks again for listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.